evening, everybody. Good evening. A very special thank you to Eliza Sloan for sponsoring tonight's class in honor of the yard site of her mother, Sarah Bas Yoshua. <laughs> what I've heard about your mother really throughout the years, it seems like it's very appropriate to have a shear on this topic of encouragement. It sounds like that was very much what she did in the Atlantic community and was very influential and supportive to, uh, to many. Her neshama should have an aliyah. Special Mazel Tov as well. I used to call him my youngest disciple, but he's no longer so young. He's now officially a bar mitzvah, Isaac Brenner. Mazel Tov, an upcoming bar mitzvah. We should share in many, many simchas and mitzvah Shem. Probably shared this with a few of you before, but it's definitely uh, left an impression in my, my mind over the years. As you know, that through eighth grade, I was in public school, and then after, after eighth grade, and visiting my brother in Eretz Yisrael, together with my parents, we made the decision to go to uh, a yeshiva high school. So we found Valley Torah High School, and Baruch Hashem, you know, I know how to read Hebrew, I had a bar mitzvah, didn't have much training in real, authentic Torah, but I was very, very eager to get started. Towards the beginning of the year, I, uh, I hear about this thing called Hataras Nadarim, right, the annulment of the vows that we do Erev Rosh Hashanah. I looked it over briefly the day of, and I realized, oh wow, like three or four paragraphs there in Hebrew. Going to have to read this in front of people. That's not so exciting. And I was a little bit nervous. Never read it before. So during the entire Shacharis, I was psyching myself up. It's no big deal. I got this. I can read Hebrew just fine. And if I mess up here and there, who cares? These are my friends. We play basketball together. We have a good time. They're not judgmental. All of these thoughts going through my head. What I didn't know yet, and it's still to this day it's puzzling, Jewish men have a very strange ancient custom. Shachris Erev Rosh Hashanah, for some reason we all feel compelled to get our group together at least three or four minutes before Shachris is over. And we start motioning and... So by the time davening was actually over, I realized, hey, everyone has their group. Everyone is, they're in their teams already. So I'm like, okay, okay, I'm, I'm sure I'll find somebody. And then I hear, Nayach. I turn around, and I see sitting there, Rabbi Meza, Rabbi Raskin, and Rabbi Byron. Come, join us. So right then and there, my heart was like jumping out of my throat. Like, no, I don't want to have to do this in front of people who I'm trying to impress. We'll stop there for a moment. We have in the beginning of the Parsha, the mitzvah of Bikurim, bringing the first fruits to Yerushalayim. And we know from the Mishnayos that it was uh, quite a process. It was a whole parade and there was singing and dancing. The Mishnah tells us, You have people coming from near and far. 
The ox was leading the way, the of Mitsupo Zov, with its horns that were covered in gold, the Teresh al Berosha, with an olive crown on its head. Hachalil Makalif Nehem, somebody was playing the flute as everyone was marching together towards Yerushalayim, Besimcha Rabbah. Ad Shemagiyim Karav Yerushalayim, until they came close to Yerushalayim. Higiyu Karav Yerushalayim. They sent messengers in front of them, letting people know they were arriving. The Itures Bikurehem, and they designed, they decorated the Bikurim. And then Hapachos Hasaganim Vagizborim Yotzilikrosim, all of the noble people of Jerusalem, they came out to greet the, the ones bringing the Bikurim. Vichol Bale Umnio Shibirushalayim Omdim Lifnehem. All of the craftsmen, all of the people who were busy working, they would stand up, they would stop their job. And they would ask of their welfare. And they would say, Our brothers from Tiveria, from Haifa, welcome to Yerushalayim. So they would stand up, stop what they were doing, and say, Welcome. We're so glad you're here with a big smile. They would continue this march, the procession with the music, until they got to the Temple Mount. And then, they came to the courtyard of the Temple, and the Levim would start to sing the song. You could just feel the intensity of the moment. But in this process, everyone would stop what they were doing, stand up as an expression of kavod, showing respect. Shalom Aleichem! Welcome! We're so glad you're here. So the Gemara Kedushin is bothered by a question. The halach is that if you're working for somebody else and you're busy doing your avoda and you're getting paid for whatever you're doing, and then even if a massive Talmud Chacham walks into the room, where generally speaking the halacha is, you stand up all the way to show respect. You can't do that. It's Geneva, you're stealing, you have a job to do. So if that's the case, the Gemara is bothered by the question, how do we understand the Mishnah and Bikurim? Why is it that when these strangers, farmers and, and who knows what, you know, nice people, but they weren't Torah scholars, they're bringing their first fruits to Yerushalayim, then we say, stop everything and stand up to show kavod. But for a Talmud Chacham, for an accomplished Torah scholar, you don't stand up, what's the difference? So the Gemara has a suggestion. It says, Dilma, shiny hasam, maybe it's different in the case of Bikurim, because if you don't stand up, listen to these words carefully, if you don't show them the respect, if you don't show them that you're so happy they're here doing the mitzvah of Bikurim, you will cause them to stumble in the future. What does that mean you're going to cause them to stumble? So Rashi explains, it's actually a Rashi in Chulin, similar Gemara there. Rashi says, if you don't show them your face with a smile and your respect and your admiration for what they're doing, they're not going to come back next year because 
It's a hassle. It's a schlep. So they might not do the mitzvah. If you don't show them that you're impressed, if you don't express that, that I, have a, I have a sense of, of, of respect and admiration because you're doing this mitzvah, they might not do it again. And if they choose not to do it again, who's responsible? You are. You're machshildim. It's like you're causing them to stumble in the future. So for a Talmud Chacham, you don't have to stand up. I'm busy working. But if by me not showing you kavod, that could, that could make it that you now think in your head, it's not worth it. I don't get appreciation anyway. So what's the point of doing it again? If you could stop that mindset and you don't, then you're responsible for them not coming back in the future. It's a pretty scary thought. If you could encourage somebody, you could make it that doing the mitzvah was geschmack for them, and they felt good about themselves. And for some reason, I chose not to. I didn't compliment you for, for going out of your way, for doing the chesed. And therefore, you might not do it again because of my lack of respect. I'm partly responsible for that. There's a very cryptic, uh, somewhat esoteric, midrashic source, the Medrash Tanchuma tells a story of Rabbi Bachaya Bar Simon. He says, once in our city, there is a ruach, there is a spirit. What exactly this ruach was, I'm not sure. But there is a spirit, the Hayashori al-Hamayin, that used to dwell on top of a spring. Another spirit came and wanted to remove this one. There was a chassid, there was a righteous man who was there. His name was Yossi Ish Tzaitor. And the first ruach revealed himself to Yossi Ish Tzaitor. And he said, Rebbe, what do we do? I've been here for so many years. And I've never caused harm to anybody. Minding my own business. Dwelling here on top of the spring. And now there's a new Ruach in town. There's a new spirit coming in. And he wants to kick me out. And do you know what he has in mind? <clears throat> he wants to hurt people. He wants to harm people. You got to do something. So Yossi Ish Tzaitor, although he was a chassid, he didn't quite know what to do in a case like this. Never had that Shiloh before. So uh, he says, well, what do we do? What do you recommend? Manasseh. So the Ruach says, Tulu makalechem umagalchem, take your, your shovels and your staffs, utsu'ua love bishasatsaraim, take the whole village with all of your farming tools and stand there by the spring in the afternoon. The Imru, and you should all say together the following cheer Shalanu nitseach, Shalanu notseach. We've already won. We are beating you. And you keep on screaming those words. Shalanu nitseach, shalanu notseach. Vuhu boreach. And then that spirit is going to run away. Right? What a great like camp cheer, right? Shalanu nitseach, shalanu notseach, vuhu boreach. We have ruach, yes we do. Get rid of the ruach. So they did that, and what happened? It went away. It went away. So it worked. When the Chachamim heard about this story, 
they, like we always see in Chazal, no matter how mystical, no matter how esoteric, the point is always, what can I learn from this? What can I derive from this to inspire me in my own life? So they said as follows, If you have something like the Ruach, the Spirit, it was not created for assistance. It's not something that requires help. Nonetheless, it still needs support once in a while. Then, how much more so when we talk about human beings? We are created as dependent beings. We need each other. I need your chizik, I need your encouragement. So if the ruach that wasn't created for assistance still needed the help of people, then obviously human beings need that help. It sounds like there was nothing, maybe somewhat magical, but it was more than magic. They weren't really doing anything to fight away or to destroy the other evil spirit. It was just the cheers, it was the chanting. We've already won and we're winning right now. That was good enough. It's an amazing thing, you know, you go to any, any sports event and you have a crowd cheering. What that does for, for, first of all, everyone in the crowd, it's electrifying. It just, it just like sends this wave of energy. And then what it does to the players on the field, the, the, the louder and the more intense we cheer, the more of a sense of chizik these players get. And they can accomplish more. And they can run faster and they can jump higher. And there are studies on this. It's an amazing thing what a round of applause could do. Maybe everybody together, round of applause, yeah? Right? You feel that? You can feel it, even though it's totally artificial, but you can still feel it. So when it comes to our relationship with the Kaddish Baruch Hu, we have to try to be tuned in as much as possible to the support that Hashem is giving us and to the reality that Hashem is always there with us. David Melech writes in Tehillim, the famous Pasuk, Gam ki elich begeit salmovis, even when I feel like I'm walking in the shadows of death, where everything is so incredibly dark and confusing, and I don't see any light. Lo irara, I'm not going to fear evil, ki ata imadi, because I know you're with me. It's that, it's that sense, that hargasha, that deep-rooted feeling of ki ata imadi, you are standing there with me, Hashem, I feel your encouragement. That's the greatest source of chizik. There's a letter that was written by Rabbi Kiva Eger, right, one of the greatest minds of the 1700s. And he was writing the letter to a family where the, the father passed away and he was sending words of comfort to the, the son. And he starts off by saying, really there's, there's no words However, there is a Pasuk in Yeshaya. Rikiv Eger quotes the Pasuk in Yeshaya that we read, a special Haftorah on Shabbos, Rosh Chodesh, where Yeshaya Hanavi says, in the shame of Hashem, imo Just like a mother comforts her son, so too I, Hashem, I will comfort you, Klal Yisrael. Just like a mother comforts her son, I will comfort you. So Rikiva Eger says, think about it for a moment. 
Why is the mother the person who has the best ability to, to bring Nechama to a child? Because she could say, you lost your father, and that's devastating. I lost my husband. Mitzvah Shem, you're going to grow up, you're going to get older, you're going to get married, you're going to move on with life, you're going to carry on the, the legacy of the family, and you'll continue. For me, this is a different life forever. Like the Gemara says, when a husband passes away, the one who feels it the most is Ishto, is his wife. So if I'm the one who's, who's almost getting the brunt of this, if I could somehow find the Chama by reminding myself, by strengthening myself in that belief that a Kaddish Baruch Hu is with me, and therefore, the holy words of Rabbi Kiva Eger, the mother says, I can just grab onto Hashem with both arms and embrace, because I feel that embrace from Hashem. Then, then you too, my son, you could also feel Nechama. Rabbi Kiva Eger concludes his letter by saying, my only advice, my only suggestion in a time like this is to grab onto Hashem because Hashem feels the pain. Also, Hashem is right there with us. I'm with you, says Hashem. I'm with you with your tzara. That's encouragement. We know Kaddish Baruch Hu is there with us. Sometimes it's subtle, though. And sometimes within the human dynamic, it's not just cheering somebody on or saying, great job, Sometimes it's not even the words that we say, but it's just the feeling. It's, uh, it's the avira, it's the atmosphere that I feel your support and you could feel my support. You know, there, there are many famous speeches throughout history. Right, what was the title of Dr. Martin Luther King's famous speech? I have a dream, right? All the great speeches have a, a basic title. This is their theme. David Melech has a favorite speech as well, which I would call Eich Noflu Giborim, How the Mighty Ones Have Fallen. When did he share these words of Chizik with Klal Yisrael? After the death of Shaul and his three sons and the war against the Plishtim. Eich noflu giborim in his eulogy, David says, how is it possible that someone of his stature could fall? Shol and his son, Yonason, who were beloved and pleasant, in their life and in their death, they never parted. They were swifter than eagles, they were stronger than lions. So in their life and even in their death, lo nifridu, they never separated. What does that mean? So the Malbim explains, he says, there are two reasons why you could lose a war potentially. Either because we don't have the, uh, the manpower, we don't have the training, Right, we're lacking, let's say, in our weapons. That's one reason. But that wasn't the case here. We're talking about Shaul and Yonasan. They were expert warriors. Another reason could be that sometimes, Yekoshlu Hagiborim, mighty people will fall in war, 
if there's a lack of love between the soldiers. And we're not supporting each other. That I'm not saying, be strong to my brother. Sometimes you could lose the war even though we're giburim, we're well-trained, we're mighty warriors, but if we're not feeling that support for each other, if we don't have that, that sense of team, we could still lose. David HaMelech was saying that lo nifredu, that was not the case with Shol and Yonason. They were together like this till the bitter end, supporting each other in life and in their death. But the support that we could feel, which is really the power of a community, right? people praise the community, Bar Hashem, such a warm place, there's a sense of achtos, almost like a family-like atmosphere. And all of these things objectively are beautiful. But it's so much more than just being a nice environment. The goal of any group where there's a sense of I'm supporting you and you're supporting me is that as an individual, therefore, we could accomplish so much more when I feel that chizik. <clears throat> Sometimes in, in the real world, so to speak, You'll hear lines, and, and sadly, you might even hear this sometimes in the, in the world of Torah institutions, hopefully not often. A line, for example, listen, everyone's replaceable. Right? If it's not going to work out, I, I feel terrible. Everyone's replaceable. From a Torah Hashkafa standpoint, would we buy into that line? Chas v'shalom. Everyone's replaceable? Do you realize what kind of heresy that is? There is no one in the world that can do your job like you're doing it. Now the position is replaceable. Someone else could take over for me and they would do a wonderful job and I'm sure they're much better in many areas than I am, but they're not me. Nobody's replaceable. Another line, I think more in corporate America, why should I compliment him if he's just doing the job he's paid to do? Right, that makes sense. Why should I be mechazik him if he's just doing his task? Again, not a Torah hashkafa. If we feel that someone's doing a good job, whether or not they're fulfilling a responsibility or they're going beyond the call of duty, it doesn't make a difference. People need chizik, and when we encourage them with our words, when we create an atmosphere of support, that could, that could infuse someone with potential that they never had before. Nobody is replaceable, and yes, even if you're doing your job that you're getting paid for, you deserve words of chizik. I think there are three steps here practically. The first step is, in order for me to encourage you, I have to notice that you exist. And now it sounds easier said than done. Revolber writes in his Kuntres Lechassanim, his instructions for newly married men, he says that in order to, to really compliment your wife, in order to give her a feeling of security and a real foundation of love in the marriage, you have to notice that she's there. That's the first step, right? Before we get too deep and too philosophical, just notice she's there. And then when I'm actually noticing you, 
and I'm, I'm, I'm looking at what you're doing, then it's a lot easier to be able to compliment in a real way, to be able to express gratitude in a real way. So the first step of really giving someone the encouragement that they need is just noticing them. Now part of noticing is trying to the best of my abilities to put myself in your situation, which is impossible, but to the best of my abilities to put myself in your shoes. There's an amazing, uh, amazing story with the Chazanish. This was told by Rev. Dov Yafa, Mashkiach of Kfar Chassidim, who was quoting from Rev. Dov Landau, who saw this directly with the Chazanish. The Chazanish was going to some appointment, and as he was walking from his home to the car that was waiting for him, there were many people waiting outside the door, and as soon as he started to step outside, people were sharing with the Chazanish some of their struggles, some of their burdens, some of their, their suffering. And a few minutes he was walking and schmoozing with them and each one trying to give his full attention. And then when he gets into the car, he turns to the driver and says as follows, He's a hair. Be very careful. Drive away very slowly. Okay. Yes, sir. And the driver drives away very slowly. He's curious why. As the Chazanish explained, from the, the 20, 25 feet from my house to the car, I'm, I'm hearing people unburden themselves about real, real suffering. And, and I want to be there for them as much as I can. If I was to get into a car and then have it drive away quickly, what message is that sending? How does the person feel who is sharing his life and, and, and his troubles with me if I now get into a car and it drives away quickly? Noro right? noros! Who thinks like that? But that's a sensitivity of, I'm noticing you, I, I'm trying to understand you, I'm, I'm, I'm putting myself in your reality to the best of my abilities. Only then we have the, the, the opportunity to give real chizik, real encouragement. The second step is it has to be genuine. Sometimes the reason why I'm complimenting you is because I want to control you. I want you to listen to me and obey me more. So I figure, okay, uh, part of the equation is if I give you positive reinforcement, then you'll keep on listening and feel good about the task that you're doing, and ultimately I'll be gaining more. If the recipient of the chizik ever feels that I'm just giving you positive feedback because somehow that's going to suit me, you're destroying the relationship. And I think the greatest challenge with this is regarding children. If my child feels the only reason I'm complimenting him is because he put his shoes on when I only had to ask him seven times and not 15, so he might appreciate that. But if that's the only time and place where you're saying great job, so then they start getting the picture, he compliments me in order to make me listen to what he wants me to do. That's not real feedback. There's a very insightful piece from Dr. David Pelkovitz, where he says that when you look at students throughout elementary school and trying to ascertain their level of confidence in themselves and their work, source number eight, he speaks about the need for praise and encouragement in a context that conveys to the child that the parent believes that he or she is competent. 
Such praise needs to be delivered in a manner that is perceived by the child as sincere and not coming from a parent's attempt to control him or her. A child's belief in his or her ability, his or her academic self-concept, is perhaps the main contributor to academic success or failure. Researchers have found that the most powerful predictor of this sense of competence is parental confidence in the child. Parents who do not believe in their children's potential tend to have children who display helpless behaviors in the face of challenging academic tasks and are more likely to be viewed as unmotivated by their teachers. <coughs> Dr. Pelkovitz quoted from Remichel Torsky. Remichel Torsky, first of all, we sing some of his nagunim here in East Boca, a wonderful Balmanagain, but he was really the builder of, uh, of a wonderful community in Milwaukee. When he was talking about his, his methodology, so he said, as long as I had a conscious agenda of trying to make people more religious, I failed. It was only when I wasn't trying, when all I cared about was building relationships with no strings attached, that others became motivated to grow spiritually. If I sense there's an agenda, even if it's a righteous agenda, but if I sense you're being nice to me because you want me to become something different, you want me to change, it's not going to work. And the same thing is true when it comes to Kiruv. Remember years ago, somebody showed me a little promo that was meant to, to inspire from Balabatim, regular religious people to, to reach out more to their non-religious friends and neighbors. And there was one line there that bothered me greatly, which was something along the, the lines of smile in order to, to give them a good impression of what a religious Jew is. And of course we believe in that. But the real, the deep reason, right, the most basic reason why I want to smile at you is because it's because I love you, and I want to be mechazek you. And even if I know through a nevuah, I have prophecy, you're never going to change, right? Rechman this person's never going to grow in his Judaism. I'm still going to smile at you, because I love you, because you're a neshama. Not because I'm trying to get you to do something else. My, my Rosh Hashiva, Zeich Tzadik Levracha, Rav Libowitz, he had this really unique ability to infuse his Talmidim with a sense of mission, a sense of confidence, to be able to go anywhere in America and feel like we could change the world. They're waiting for us. Speaking to, to many people really in, in the prior generation, who were with Marosh Shiva when he was younger. There are so many people out there throughout America who may not have been the, the all-star Talmud in Yeshiva. They may not have been brilliant, but they had such a feeling of, of competence that the Rosh Hashiva was able to somehow just inspire them and light that fire. The Korach Torah. People are waiting for it. People are so receptive to real, authentic Torah. And you have it. You have the ability to share that with the masses. These people 
10 and 20 and 30 and 40 years later when you speak to them, they're still on fire. It takes unique individuals or unique leaders not to create followers, but to create leaders. To create men and women who feel a sense of mission and, and confidence that I could do this also. So we have to notice people. It's got to be genuine. It can't be. It's coming from my own agenda. And I think the third and final step is we have to appreciate the process or the effort, the decisions that are made more so than the results that come from anyone's actions. And this is a very difficult thing to do. And so, for example, you have uh, little David, who's nine years old. He decides to pick up his two-year-old sister by the legs and dangle her. And Baruch Hashem in Florida, it's not over the carpet, it's over the tile. What a wonderful thing to do. And he's laughing, the other kids are cracking up, wonderful. And the parents see this and they get angry, what are you doing? Okay. Baruch Hashem, she doesn't fall. Okay. So because she doesn't get hurt, although mom and dad might be upset, it's somewhat mitigated. However, case number two, David has his cup of orange juice, and without really paying too much attention, he reaches across the table for a Lego, and the whole orange juice goes flying. And it spills all over the table, all over the floor, all over the chair. It's likely that a parent would be more upset when the juice spills than when he was dangling his sister over the tile floor. Why is that the case? Because we look at the results. We look at what actually happened. If the juice didn't spill, how upset would I be, right? You careless little boy, reaching over the table for your Lego, what are you thinking? No, whatever, people do that. It only bothers me because the result, and the result wasn't, wasn't totally based on your negligence. Okay, you weren't thinking. But to dangle your sister over the tile floor, that's something that I should have zero tolerance for. So sometimes we focus way too much on what actually happens when in truth the encouragement is what are, your, what are you doing now? What's your decision-making process? And there is an article about audience influence. When you have people applauding at a sports game, so usually, right, let's say you have uh, someone hits the ball, it's going towards the the, the back left field, and it could be a home run, and the left fielder jumps up, and he could catch it somewhat normally, but he's in a mood to show off, so he turns around and catches it behind his back. And if he actually makes the catch, the crowd goes wild. If he doesn't make the catch, he's a complete fool, because you could have caught that ball, right? Or the guy in basketball is going for the open layup, just, just dunk it, right? No need for the 360 tomahawk. <laughs> but he decides, I want to show the world what I could do, and he does so. And if he does it, the crowd goes wild. So the article points out that we give more credence to the result than to the, the actual decision. If we applauded the decision likely, that would encourage teams to actually make smarter choices more often and probably win more often. That's number three. We encourage the decision, the journey, the amelus, the effort, more so than the result. When you read some of the letters of Gedola Yisrael, 
some of the great Torah personalities, you, you really see this coming to life. I want to share with you just a couple of lines from uh, a very famous letter from Rav Yitzchak Hutner, where uh, Talmud was writing to him that he's feeling very depressed because right now he's in a, in a fairly low state and he's made many mistakes and he's not in the level he thought he would be. So Rav Hutner writes back that I received your wonderful letter and it was made, it was testifying to me like a hundred Edim, that you're a true fighter. I could sense the struggle from your letter. Ahuvi, listen to these words. My beloved, this is the great, one of the greatest Rishashivas in America speaking to a, you know, an 18 year old kid. Ahuvi, I want to draw you to my heart and whisper something into your ear. If the letter you composed to me was speaking about all of your wonderful mitzvos and your learning stark for 14 hours a day, I would have said, okay. Very nice letter. That's good. That's good. Achshav, but now that your letter is telling me about the Yeridos v'nafilos u'michsholim, about your failings, about your fallings, about your setbacks, hinani omer, shekibalti bimcha michtav tov ma'od. Now I say, I received a very good letter. Right? Because I feel the struggle. If you were just sailing through life, and you were learning well, I would feel that's a tremendous bracha. I'd say tov. But now that you're sharing with me, there's so many setbacks and there's problems and, and you're pushing yourself and it's not easy. And sometimes you fall, but you get back up. Tov ma'od. And he continues, Mishtatefani b'sivlecha I am partnering with you in, in this burden. I feel it. But I want you to know, but it's this very struggle, this is the womb of greatness. It's through the setback and it's through the falling that's going to create greatness. I've seen your face when you were learning halacha in the base madrash. I've seen your face when you're listening to the shiurim. I see your sincerity. I see you there on the seventh night of Pesach, together in the yeshiva. I could feel your kedusha. You have so much potential. I'm joining with you. With faith in your success. With a, with a prayer that you should be matzliach. Yitzchak Hutner. That's called words of encouragement. I'm appreciating the journey. I'm appreciating the struggle. And I'm giving you a very clear expression of my respect. In my life, the people who I've seen, people who I've been exposed to, who have been the most influential Torah personalities, are the people who are not looking at you based on your results, based on the, the, the stats on paper, so to speak, but they're looking at you as a neshama. They're looking at you as a human being, where they could appreciate the down, 
They could appreciate the darkness and the confusion. And they're there with you. Those who have been able to give chizik are the Torah personalities that change the world. You could be the most brilliant, most accomplished Torah personality. But if you can't be mechazik somebody, you can't let somebody know that I'm with you. I'm emulating the ways of a Kaddish Baruch Hu. Hashem wants us to know that He's with us. I want you to know that I'm with you. Whatever that means, whatever I could do. And I, and I might not have any answers. And I might not be able to give you any real suggestions on how to get out of the darkness. But I'm in the darkness with you. That does the most for changing lives. Somebody went to Reb Nassim Svi Finkel, Red Shiva of Mir, and they wanted him to daven for their particular situation. And it was already a time where he was very ill, and he couldn't get the words out. He was laying there on his couch. But basically, he was able to, to just be mishtatev, to join in with this poor person going through such a hard time, and he cried with her. The most he could do was cry. But those tears were an expression of hishtatfus. I'm joining in because I don't have any answers. I can't tell you what tomorrow's going to bring. I don't know if he'll have a refuel or not. I could daven and I could cry with you. At the, the, one of the hespedim, there are many eulogies for Reb Nassim Svi Finkel. Reb Mordechai Grunwald, he was the executive director of uh, Yeshiva Smir, and he was a close Talmud of Reb Nassim Svi. So he was asked to give a hespid at the Yeshiva Gedola of Tinek. So he spoke about Reb Nassim Svi and coming from America and his evolution into one of the, the great Gedolim. And what he did for the Mir Yeshiva totally revolutionized the, the entire infrastructure. And he told many stories. One of the stories he told is that Reb Nassim Svi had a Talmud he was very close with. And tragically, he passed away. So Nuts and Svi made it clear to the family, there were boys, there were orphans, that I'm going to do the best that I possibly can to be a father figure in their lives. And please, he said, write me with questions, write me letters just keeping me updated on your progress and how school is going. And they took full advantage of that relationship. And there were letters back and forth for years, even when the Shiva was not feeling well enough, he forced himself to write. Eventually, these boys went to Eretz Yisrael to learn yeshiva, and he was very instrumental in getting the right yeshiva for each boy, what was unique to their personality. And uh, that was the story he told. He kept a picture of the family in his pocket. So when he would show people, or he would talk about his mishpacha, part of the mishpacha was this almana and, and her children. So that was the story that Rabbi Grunwald told. After the hespid, a person, one of the members of the kolel in Yeshiva Gedol of Tinek, he approached Rabbi Grunwald, and he said, there's more to that story. Really? He's like, yeah. Besides the four boys, there was also an eight-year-old girl. Right? She was younger. And she always felt kind of bad that she couldn't write the same kind of letters as her brothers and ask questions in Torah or Hashkafa. So she didn't feel like she had that same relationship. Until one day, there's a letter from Yerushalayim. And her mother walks into the room and hands it to her. This is for you. 
she realizes pretty quickly this is from the Rosh Hashiva. So she opens it up, she's super excited, and she sees it's an 8 by 11 piece of paper with a picture of a heart on it and just a few words of encouragement and wanted to see how you were doing and I'm thinking about you. Signed, Nussin Svifinkel. Kolo person says to Rav Grunwald, you might ask, how do I know this, <laughs> right? Because she's my wife. Right? We're married now, Baruch Hashem, and she still tells me to this day, it was 15 years later, she still tells me that was one of the highlight moments in her life. So I turn around and I see Rabbi Meza, Rabbi Raskin, and Rabbi Byron, and I don't know what I'm going to do. So I stumble through Hataras Nadarim, and I'm feeling, you know what? I am such a fool. They probably think I have no potential. I finish up, right? Mutterlach, mutterlach, mutterlach. Thank you so much, okay? Fine. I'm going to go crawl back into my shell now. It's been a pleasure. As I'm walking away to be one of the other Dayanim, Rabbi Meza says, turns to the other rabbis, Nayach, he's going to be a tremendous Talmud Chacham one day. Tragically, that never happened. <laughs> but at least at the time, it gave me a nechama. It totally changed my picture of myself. It wasn't like, yeah, I'm just a loser because I can't read Hebrew that well. But there was a sense of, no, he's not just judging me and looking at me superficially. He sees that I have potential. And if he sees that I have potential, and I respect them, then maybe I do have potential. We should be zochet to feel Hashem's encouragement in our lives. Ki imadi, Hashem is always with us. We should be zochet to emulate the ways of Hashem by encouraging others through our words, through our support, and through our love. A good job,